It's old-timey crimey. I am Christy. And I am Barb. Yes, this is Barb the Light Barbie and it's back you guys. Amber is on vacation right now. Well deserved. It is not going well so far. <laughs> no. Not going well, but hopefully things look up a little bit there. And so yeah, we are uh, inviting the Light Barbie in onto the show. A little to... bit of library, little bit of Barb. <laughs> It's a little bit of the best of the both worlds, and uh, we very much appreciate you joining us for some old-timey crime storytelling. I am here for it, <laughs> literally and figuratively, and walking in with no knowledge of what we're talking about today. Yes, so, exactly, exactly. Buckle up, dear listeners. We are in for this ride together. I had some fun with, uh, with this particular one, too, so a little bit of housekeeping. Listeners, I am, uh, as you hear this maybe, if you're listening to it on Friday, uh, getting a surgery on uh, one of my joints to stabilize it and maybe be in less pain. This is the first of two planned surgeries. The second one is not scheduled yet. It depends on when I recover. But this is just a heads up that episodes might be a little sporadic because it's going to be harder for me to get work done when I can't sit because I'm not going to be weight bearing for a while. And uh, the surgery is like kind of on the butt because that's where the SI joints are. <laughs> They're like right under the top of the buttock. <laughs> so yeah, my butt's going to hurt. <laughs> I can't imagine trying to record a podcast upside down on a couch, probably with several pillows involved. It sounds like it would just be a nightmare. Yeah, it really does. It really does. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give myself some time to focus on healing and recovering from the surgery so that I can have the second surgery and then be done with this for hopefully forever, I hope. So yeah, um, that's just a heads up that, you know, there there might be maybe not a release every week, we might go every other week for a little while, something like that. But we did build up our reservoir of bonus episodes over on the Patreon. So there will be still for our patrons a, a new bonus episode every week. So we want to make sure they get their, their money's worth. And uh, so yeah, if you have that old-timey, crummy-shaped hole in your heart, and you need to fill it with something, then you can come on over to the Patreon, that's patreon.com slash oldtimeycrimey, and uh, you can get a lot of content there to uh, to help you through this difficult time of life not knowing when old-timey crimey is going to come out. <laughs> so yeah, that's... Uh, just send happy thoughts my way, if you happen to be listening to this on Friday especially, but uh, you know, anytime. Uh, I would really appreciate it. Just the united force of our wonderful listeners coming together to think, make Christy better. Post some memes in the group. Maybe send some pictures of adorable pets. Adorable pets. Yes, yes. Because you're going to need something to be entertained by as well. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. So, so yeah, I just, I really, really appreciate our listeners. Um, I hate leaving you high and dry. It will break my heart if we have one week without an episode, but... I really need to focus on getting better. So yeah, that's what's going on there. Fun times for Christy. Ooh, everybody, also, while you're thinking of happy thoughts, uh, think happy thoughts for uh, Christopher J. Garcia, friend of the show, who is uh, this weekend going to find out whether he won another Hugo or not. Well, so, that's wonderful news. Yeah, and his wife, too. <laughs> so it's a very exciting weekend for them. All right. And uh, you can continue sending us your hometowns, too. We've got a nice little list of them. And we're going through and, you know, 
It doesn't matter if it's a, a tiny little village or a big city, we will try and find something there. You know, even if they're shorter stories and we can pile those together and, and do a, you know, an episode of shorter, you know, murder stories from your towns. But yeah, send that to Facebook, send it to the email, oldtimeycrimey at gmail, because we're doing that for the first time this week. We are visiting Springfield, Massachusetts, courtesy of Chris. Yeah, Chris, thanks for the submission. Chris was the very first submission once we put this uh, this call for towns out there for old-timey, towny crimey. We're still workshopping it, but I think we I think that's it, yeah. <laughs> and yeah, Chris sent me about Springfield, gave me a little information about the place, and as is the case for many people, there are crimes in your town's history that are lost to history sometimes, that nobody re really remembers. I found one. Almost immediately, I started looking, and the thing was, it was a, more difficult than I expected because Springfield's newspapers are not on newspapers.com. Oh no, that's a hiccup in our research path. Exactly, not a single one of them. So I just searched around Boston, figuring Boston would cover Springfield. Sure enough, the Boston Globe came up and delivered. So I'm going to be telling you this deep cut, lost to history tale of Bertram Gager Spencer. Oh, that's a name. Yes, it is a name. Let's start with a little bit about Springfield. Sort of set our scene here. It is the birthplace of basketball and Dr. Seuss. Uh, Marion Webster's first American English dictionary has been published there since 1831. Okay, that's pretty cool. Isn't that neat? Yeah. And uh, for friend of the show, Joel, the Indian motorcycle was first manufactured in Springfield in 1901. Company was called Hendy Manufacturing at first. George Washington started the U.S. National Armory there and... It's the birthplace of the Springfield Rifle. Go figure. The first horseless car in America was made there in 1825. The first mass-produced vulcanized rubber in 1844. The first gasoline-powered car in America in 1893. I don't think we need to question why Springfield calls itself City of Firsts. Yeah, um, it also sounds like it's so desperately boring that people have nothing to do but sit around and think of <laughs> things to invent or ways to innovate. <laughs> you know, it, it does seem they have some stuff going on there, but maybe not so much in the 1800s. You know? Most places didn't have a lot of stuff going on in the 1800s. Yeah, really. You, you had your, your cup and your ball, and that was really, you know, it for entertainment. You know, you had a stick that you, you ran along the fence. <laughs> yeah, make that ting, 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 ting noise. So, um, people who were born and lived there. Seems like it really is just one of those places where it just breeds people of note. Johnny Appleseed. John Brown, the famous abolitionist. Milton Bradley. Thornton Burgess, or Burgess, I'm not sure, who wrote Peter Cottontail. Aww. Beloved children's book. John Cena. Swinging around there, giving you whiplash. <laughs> Peter Cottontail and John Cena. When do you hear those back-to-back -back in a sentence? <laughs> uh, singer Yodlin Slim Clark, which I just had to get in there. Uh, Timothy Leary. Uh, Kurt Russell and Chloe Savini. I don't know who Chloe Savini is. She's an actress. I know that much. Okay. I think moderately famous. I'm sure I've seen her in something. Springfield finds her noteworthy. Yes, yes, Springfield finds her noteworthy. It just seems like a place where people with talents uh, tend to be. 
also seems to be the birthplace of several metalcore bands. It's a strange little um, sort of trend I saw in the list of musical acts from there. There's All That Remains, Kill Switch Engage, and Shadows Fall. And speaking of music, uh, uh, if you're listening to this before September 16th, you can go see the Dropkick Murphys. In Springfield? Fun. In Springfield. Oh, yeah. very nice. That would be really fun. Yeah. If you're looking for something else to do, there's, of course, the Dr. Seuss Museum. And there's also a Dr. Seuss Sculpture Garden, which sounds delightful. You yeah. know somebody is selling those hats, like, like oh, mad. Yes, the absolutely. Cat and the hat, hats. Oh, I wonder how it was there when that was, like, a craze in, like, the late 90s. <laughs> <laughs> there's also a Titanic Museum. Now, I have never been to one of the Titanic Museums. There's several of them. Uh, but I was reading about it earlier, and it seems like one thing they'll do is when you come in, they'll give you a name and a little bio of one of the ship's passengers, and you get to like follow along on that passenger's story as you progress through the museum, and then at the end, you find out whether they survived or not. I kind of love it. Yeah. I need to get me to a Titanic museum. Our local uh, Heritage Discovery Center does that too with, uh, with people who immigrated to our town. Oh yeah, that's right. Oh yeah, that is neat. There's also Hasbro Gameland. Dope. Yeah, I would like to go there too. And uh, there's in May, Springfield has the world's largest pancake breakfast. Why are we not planning our next trip to Springfield? I know, right? So many activities. Now, this actually started as a little war between the towns, with between Springfield and Battle Creek, Michigan, which is the cereal capital. Pancake versus cereal? Yeah, well, I mean, it started with, with cereal, I think, and then eventually, eventually, I think, they, the Springfield was like, you know, there are other breakfast foods that are maybe easier to do in, I don't know, <laughs> like without worrying about milk. I don't know. The avarice just grew and grew and grew. <laughs> yeah. So there is a trophy for who serves the largest breakfast, and it's called the breakfast bowl. That's perfect. <laughs> I know, right? That is delightfully on brand. I love when I'm starting a case to kind of glance around the town and see what it's like today. Mm -hmm. um, there were some establishments there that intrigued me. Uh, the Storrowtown Tavern and Carriage House, which is in a building from circa 1789. That's really cool. Really neat. Uh, I just like the name of Two Weeks Notice Brewing Company. <laughs> And speaking of why are we not there, they have not one but two restaurants or, you know, food trucks devoted to baked potatoes. Oh, awesome. Those pictures on the Google review were just, like, killing me. I oh, like, I, I wanna, love it. I want to eat all of that right now. Now, it's, uh, like, 155,000 is the current population. At the time we're talking, it had a population of about 89,000. Okay. So that's what we're talking. Still feels like it had a, sort of a small town mentality or at least this little community was pretty, you know, everybody knew each other very much. So let's talk a little bit first about a young woman named Martha Blackstone. That sounds like a proper colonial American name. I mean, I know we're in the 1800s, but it, it's, you know, that, that Massachusetts kind of feel. We're actually Blackstone. in the 1900s, but she was born oh. in 1871. Okay. So uh, uh, she was a young woman much beloved and respected in the community. So she was born in Shelburne Falls, Massachusetts. It's kind of unclear what happened to her parents, but she was adopted. And her adoptive father had a hardware store in Springfield. 
she did keep her biological father's last name as her middle name, so it feels like this was some sort of open adoption, and grew up an only child. At age 22, or no, she went to Smith College and then graduated at age 22, and she started teaching. Really, she seemed to be uh, focused on elementary ages, and in 1910, she had been teaching first grade at the Jefferson Avenue School. She was called, quote, a woman of high intellect and culture and was respected and beloved by her pupils and associates. And it's no surprise, you know, she had a lot in common with her colleagues at the school, so she made some friends there. She started hanging out with Harriet Dow, a fellow teacher, and Harriet's sister, Lucy. Now, these two sisters lived with their mother, Sarah Dow, in a pretty nice neighborhood called Round Hill, which maybe it's there, like, informally, but I couldn't really find it on the maps, so... I had good name. You know, names change. Yeah, they do, yeah. Corporations and... Especially street names and place names also tend to tend to vary over, you know, the course of a century. Uh, one of the... A couple of the streets that I saw in accounts of this, I was really frustrated because I love seeing things on the map. A couple of the streets that I saw did not... Uh, exist anymore. So that was frustrating. But I was able to figure out about where Round Hill was because there was one uh, article that gave kind of the boundaries of the streets. So. so yeah, she would go to their house. It was about a mile from hers. She visited them often. They would have dinner, play cards, or do what they were calling uh, puzzle pictures, which are just jigsaws. And uh, so yeah, that's what she was doing on the night of March 31st, 1910. She was visiting with her friends and doing a jigsaw puzzle. You bring up a very specific date, Christy. I wonder why. I do, I do. Have you... This is just a guess. I'm just throwing it out there. But have you listened to true crime podcasts before? You know, I've I've been known to dabble. Dabble. You're a dabbler. You're a dabbler. I get it. I get it. Yeah. Yeah, you seem to be uh, just vaguely familiar (laughs) (laughs) with uh, some of our tells that can't be avoided. (laughs) All right, let's talk a little bit about Bertram G. Spencer. He was born in 1881 in Lebanon, Connecticut. His father was W.L. Spencer. He was from an old family. He had one of the two stores in their little town until he he eventually closed the store. His mother was also from another old family. Uh, So basically, good American stock as the somewhat eugenicist saying goes. <laughs> when you really look at that saying, you're like, I don't like it. <laughs> that says some things. So yeah, Bertram was the oldest of three and he went to public school. Then his parents sent him off to see some of the world as a teen um, on, a, on a naval ship. In uh, the Boston Globe says that he was married in March 1908 to Minnie Amberger. Sorry, Amberg who was a bookkeeper and stenographer. So she's a career girl. She's got dreams. Until she gets married. Uh, Yeah. yeah. And quote, he had the respect and confidence of a wide circle of respectable friends, and he appeared manly and fit to merit their confidence. He was a kind husband, loved his wife, and provided for his family as a good husband should. As a husband, he was most exemplary. This was also true of his private life insofar as it related to sobriety and personal habits. He did not use liquor or drugs. I like the idea of using liquor. You know? <laughs> he doesn't use liquor. <laughs> he was also said to be a snappy dresser who wore fine clothes and kept himself in spick and span condition. In Very. keeping with his, his family's uh, status, I, I assume. Yeah, very, uh, very impeccable. 
So let's talk about someone else. Someone who was terrorizing Springfield for two years. Burglarizing people. Oh no. Yes. Started in 1908. This is from a report on the burglaries. Although they exhibited an almost unparalleled daring and bravado, the burglar, burglaries were evidently not the work of a professional burglar. Well, let's unpack the idea of a professional burglar. Is this a certificate program one pursues? <laughs> you know, it's a two-year degree. Mm-hmm. You're, you're going to really not even want to take electives because the gen ed courses are just so fun. I feel like there's probably a lot of classes. Lock picking, obviously. Lock picking, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> I think there's um, accessories. Yes. There's, there's the accessories class where you learn about you know, like masks of various types and their advantages and disadvantages, what shoes are good to wear, stuff like that, you know. Should, gloves, to glove or not to glove. How to fence. <laughs> How to fence, yeah, and not with a sword. Although no. maybe, <laughs> that could be a good elective. So yeah, there is that two-year program. And then if you choose to, you can get a bachelor's of burglary uh, mm -hmm. after two years at a university. Yeah, and I know that, you know, Indiana University of PA, their degree is quite prestigious for professional burglars. I don't know why I'm throwing shade on that particular location, except for the fact it is close by. And not the school where I used to work. <laughs> True. Where Jackson currently works. <laughs> he is preparing as we speak for his first class tomorrow. So yes, these robberies seem to be pretty much unplanned. Uh, the culprit would get this uncontrollable urge to rob a house. And then just go out, walk around, and see, you know, what they saw. There was at least one case where it seemed like there was some casing of the joint going on. Casing would be a very important uh, burglary 200 level course, I think. Absolutely, yes, absolutely. This person came to a house begging for food and was refused. And then a few days later, someone who looked very similar robbed the house. So there was kind of this idea of, oh, was he just checking the place out? Was he casing? And it also seems like there is more to it than the, the fruits of the burglary. The culprit liked scaring people. Quote, took delight in terrifying the inmates of the houses that were robbed. In what ways? Well, seemed to enjoy, like, running into people. Did not do this during a time period when it was unlikely that they would be caught. So he was really a thrill seeker as well. He yeah. wanted to... This was like a late afternoon, early evening endeavor. That's bravado. <laughs> That's bravado, yeah. And uh, so, yeah, they would go for a walk when they saw a house where the inhabitants were distracted by something. Uh, the papers give the example of an accident or small fire. How many accidents or small fire are going on at any one moment within walking distance? <laughs> Like, really? <laughs> now, see, it sounds like he did take the distraction elective. You know, that's a great way to make sure that you're rerouting somebody's attention so that you can get in. But yeah, I think that's the diversions class. Mm -hmm, yeah. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Give them the old razzle dazzle. <laughs> and uh, once they saw, you know, a good opportunity... Off goes the, you know, any coats. Uh, they also wore a derby hat, took that off, hid them, wore moccasins. 
very smart. That's in the accessories class. That's probably one of the first. So a softer soled shoe so that they could get around a little more yeah, you're quietly. Doing this, you're doing this while people are awake. Yeah. You know, if somebody's alone in the house and they start hearing like creaking upstairs, they're going to have thoughts. <laughs> I know. I'm. <laughs> so did, did somebody see them like acquire, like, like reclaiming the coat and, and hat? Like, how do we know he was stashing stuff? Found out later. Okay. Yeah. Okay. They were never like left there, the, the clothes. Okay. Uh, they always went. Um, and then, so, okay, at this point, we've got a very quiet burglar in the house. And the next step is to hide. And then when things were settled, hide inside the house, mind you. Creepy, and I hate it. Um, when things were settled, they would rob the household. Usually wore a slouch hat and a mask. Did have a gun. But said they never intended to kill anybody. Or, if they were feeling frisky, instead of hiding in just any old place, they'd hide uh, under a woman's bed. And then she would undress, and afterwards, they would demand her jewelry after she'd taken it off. In the first documented burglary of this spree, I guess we could call it, the culprit hid under the bed when the family came home unexpectedly and stayed there until the lady of the house went to sleep then continued ransacking the home and slipped out without a sound. This is what was missing. Jewelry, silverware, one shoe. Not a pair of shoes, one shoe. That all seems very intentional um, when, when somebody takes trophies, particularly when they take one trophy instead of both pairs, that that's very definitely a, I want you to notice that this thing is gone. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And that's the thing, is that a lot of the things that were stolen tended to be something that might not even be noticed and wasn't really of, of any value. Not everything that was stolen, but a lot. So this is uh, an, from the newspaper about both how the burglar interacted with victims and kind of the, the hallmark of what they took. The actual gain was trifling, and in most in- instances, the risk taken was out of all proportion to the possibility of gain. Indeed, this burglar frequently passed by valuable articles and took pretty trinkets of lesser value. The hours chosen for entry were generally early in the evening when there was every risk of being detected. When confronted, as frequently happened, by members of the family being robbed, the burglar seemed quite fearless so long as no noise was made but a scream or any other loud noise frequently led to a demonstration of violence. Even known to go out of their way while robbing a house to encounter the inmates, and on several occasions had conversations with them. Very ballsy. Very, very ballsy. Very. So then the burglar heads outside, gets their overclothes again, puts the slouch hat and the mask away, walks home. Police did, of course, investigate these burglaries, especially as they started happening more, and it started to see seem that there was a definite pattern going on here. For two years, they came up with absolutely not a goddamn thing. Nothing at all. But see, that's almost smart of them to do things like pass up high-ticket items that, A, might be harder to find a, a faster turnaround on, and also might be more easily identified. That is true. That is true. It does feel like a lot of it was kind of uh, just for the hell of it or satisfying some 
some urge. I don't think there was a lot of thought put into it. No, this seems very impulsive, but also very um, fantastical. Like, the, the, the burglar probably thought through a lot of these steps as part of his, his drive to do the burglaries. You know, it's not just about financial gain. He's getting off on the act itself. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And definitely, there's definitely a sense of getting off on something here. Oh, no. Did I foreshadow? No, 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 no. None of that. This just, it's just definitely that feeling of they're doing this for some reason other than the, the objects themselves or financial gain. Yeah. So let's go back to that night, March 31st, 1910, mm-hmm. over at the Dow household where Mrs. Dow, along with Harriet and Lucy... Uh, and Martha Blackstone are putting together a puzzle after a nice dinner together. A puzzle picture. A puzzle picture. Around, oh, by the way, they really were all the rage. (laughs) I did a little Googling, and there was an article about how whoever has the newest puzzle is like the most popular person around until the next person comes around with a new puzzle. There was some guy who was so obsessed with the puzzles, they didn't have any new ones to do. So he borrowed his friends that he had already done. Then he cut all the pieces in half to make it more challenging. (laughs) I love that idea. And then, I mean, you can't even figure out the border at that point because they all have the flat edge. Yeah. It's chaos. Did I tell you about the puzzle we're working on right now? No. Um, it's, It's called the $2 million puzzle where every puzzle is different because they are QR codes. Oh my god! So once you complete the puzzle, it's a QR code that you scan and claim, and you can win anywhere from $1 to $2 million. Okay, so I as, love this. As, no, no, it's terrible. <laughs> because you don't know what the puzzle looks like. And it's, it's not just a plain black and white QR code. Thank goodness. Um, it's, the, it's black, but then it has lines of green, orange, yellow, and red. So there are some clues because, like, you know, the green, orange, yellow, and red orient themselves in, like, a drop shadow effect. Mm. But trying to do a puzzle that is all straight lines and only five colors is really hard. I'm still going to be looking this up. And and there's there's a different version that has a, a, a rainbow gradient. So you can figure out, like, okay, the red goes into the yellow across the whole thing. I know Beast had one of those. But, I mean... She, she finished it, too. It's it's the hardest puzzle I've ever done in my life. And <laughs> I resent it. But I would also really like $2 million, please. Amber's going to love this idea. She's going to be buying them by the truckload. She loves puzzles. <laughs> and once you complete it, if you only get one of the lower value ones, it actually gives you, like, 50% off the next one. Oh, my gosh. So... Okay, I'm, I'm looking at this tonight. I am absolutely looking at this tonight. Oh, that's awesome. Thank you for telling me about that. Yes. And if you, dear listeners, happen to get one of these and win $2 million, please remember that we are a big fan of our Patreon supporters here at Old Timey Crimey. Yes, we love them very much. (laughs) Getting that Patreon plug in. You're such a good guest. (laughs) So yeah, we're at the Dow household. There's a jigsaw puzzle going on. Around 7.30 p.m., a man came up to the back of the house. The only people in the house were the four women. There actually was another family that lived on the second story. They weren't home. 
The man put his overcoat and derby hat in a little hidey hole near the veranda, close to the back steps. He went into the house and then slipped into the bedroom. Went to the clothes closet. He started looking around. Saw an Indian head bolt, uh, a pearl brooch, pocketed those, took some coins, rifled through a bureau, and grabbed a couple things. But most, most of the things that were of any value were left. There was other jewelry. There were two solid gold watches that were just sitting out in the open. Couldn't take any of that. That's downright silly. I know. His professors are disappointed. <laughs> Very disappointed. You know what? I bet he flunked out. <laughs> That's why I, he's not a professional burglar. I bet he's a thieving school dropout. Thieving school dropout. <laughs> I would like to come up with a song on the fly for that, but let me tell you, that is not happening today. <laughs> if we have more time. Maybe, yeah. So back down in the sitting room, the clock struck eight. Martha said she should be going soon, but she seems to be like me. She stayed and kept on playing that puzzle. And uh, five minutes later, there was a man in the doorway wearing a slouch hat and a black silk handkerchief over his mouth. And uh, the burglar's description of this, uh, why he did this, he said he was fascinated with the idea of the sensation his appearance would cause among the party of school teachers. He was just like, I'm here to create drama. That's very, I'm a messy bench. That's very egotistical. Yeah. And yeah. also very like, oh yeah, let's mess with the teachers. Yeah, yeah. It's it's very dickish, in my opinion. It's, it's douchebag behavior. Yeah. It's douchebag behavior where you're like, <laughs> I'm going to scare the teachers. <laughs> like, do you think he had a cool line in mind? Like. I bet I can figure, like, I, I can't come up with a great joke, you know? <laughs> but, you know, do you think he wanted to, like, reason, like, hey, or do you think he was going for the shock value, like, but Shock value. Okay. Absolute shock value. Yeah, this was a boo moment. Uh, and then after he booed, he demanded money. Yeah, he just said, give me your money. Mrs. Dow said they had no money. All of a sudden, it, it hit all the women what was happening. All of them leapt to their feet and screamed. Quote, on hearing the scream, the intruder darted across the room and, taking up his position in the archway between that room and the front parlor, drew his revolver and demanded quiet. Miss Blackstone rushed screaming past him into the front parlor. Instantly, the man fired at her and she fell against the couch in a kneeling position, shot through the heart. Oh, no. Yes, she died instantly. I was going to say, you have to be pretty, you have to be pretty darn scared to run past the guy with the gun. Because you're that freaked out. Yeah, yeah, it definitely feels like a moment where... Don't um, do that. <laughs> fight or flight, you're going with flight, and uh, your brain is so concentrated on that idea of getting the hell out of here that you're just missing threats to your safety. Absolutely, yeah. Lucy Dow had grabbed the telephone on the desk, but when the shot went off, she dropped the receiver and turned to see Martha dead. Harriet, meanwhile, had fallen in her rush from the room, so she was on the floor too. Her mother helped her to her feet, and then Harriet, as it was described, just went up to the intruder and started screaming. Kind of like these ladies. He swore at her and told her to shut up, then aimed the revolver at her mother. This is a quote about that. She, Harriet, seized a chair and hurled it at him, hitting the arm which held the revolver. 
Turning upon her, he said, do you want to die? Well, die then. And he shot her. She went down. But the bullet only grazed her head and she just fainted. Mrs. Dow had run off to find help, but when she heard the second shot, she came back and she found her daughter unconscious and Martha dead. The burglar was gone. He ran for it, he skedaddled, he bemoosed, and he grabbed his hat and coat on the way. Then he took, uh, here's for the locals, Arch Street to North Main to Carew, uh, then grabbed Chestnut and made his way to Bridge Street. Very specific. They were very specific in the newspapers. They're not usually, so I appreciated that because as, as you know, I'm a map dork. Such a map dork. Oh my god. I'm not even a map nerd. It's not even a, like, oh, nerds are cool now. No, I am a map dork. You make it weird? I make it weird. <laughs> I'm wandering around on street view seeing if I can peep on people. No, not really. <laughs> it just seems so interesting to me that he would do these things, like very sneakily enter a home, wait, and then control the situation to up to the point of scaring people. But then once that happens, like any planning is just out the window and he is just reactionary at that point. Yeah, absolutely. Like you would expect like, oh, I'm going to scare these people. What do I do next to control the situation so they don't do things like throw chairs at me? I think as soon as the situation spins out of his control through his own actions, granted, that spins out of his control, there's some sort of like executive dysfunction that hits when any ability to plan or change plans, just goes out the window. And he's just acting like on, on instinct. That's so strange. Yeah, it's a really, it's a really strange thing. We're going we're gonna to dig into this too. Because so. he could just walk into the room with the gun and say, hey, everybody sit. Yeah, you could keep it calm from the get-go, but he wanted to get a reaction out of them. Yeah. That was the whole point. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a weird thing. So this walk from the Dow house uh, to his own is about uh, two and a half miles-ish. It's about a 50-minute walk. It's in West Springfield. Born and raised. Born and raised. Where am I burgling? <laughs> nope. <laughs> At the Berglund schools where I spent most of my days. <laughs> there we go. The police and medical help came to the Dow house. Harriet was taken to the hospital. She had a fractured skull, and she did eventually recover. Hooray! Yes. One little silver lining here. In the aftermath, rewards were offered from various entities locally. And once, I'm going to go with the one source. It said $2,500 altogether. Uh, That's $80,000 today. The town also pulled their money and hired some Pinkertons. Uh, they, They did try to find the murderer with bloodhounds. Crowds of people gathered. This was a big deal. These bloodhounds came all the way from Poughkeepsie. Poughkeepsie? These are Poughkeepsie dogs, man. Oh my f- Poughkeepsie dogs uh, sounds like the most excellent like follow-up to Pulp Fiction, you know, instead of Reservoir Dogs. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Poughkeepsie dogs. Later, the murderer slash burglar would admit that he petted that dog. Those dogs. Uh, Yeah. Just uh, was in the crowd, gave the dogs a little pet, scratch me on the ears maybe, you know. These dogs are terrible at their job. Really, really bad. (laughs) Yeah. They were able to pick up a scent at the scene and they followed it, but it died at a a trolley post, like a place where you would 
pick up the trolley, trolley stop. So people thought the murderer had hopped a trolley. As we know, they were incorrect. They tried this a couple times and it just always ended at the same place. All right, so right now we've got a burglar slash a murderer on the run. Things are tense in Springfield. They've been tense for a while because there's been this burglar going around. Two years of burglar at this point. Exactly. So let's rewind to the moment the burglar's fate was sealed. Rewinding to six months prior, September 1909. Someone was spotted on a ladder trying to get in a house on School Street. They started climbing down quickly. Their locket got caught on a piece of the ladder. It broke, and since this was a tense, rushed moment, the burglar just fled and left it behind. The homeowner tried to catch the burglar, or would-be burglar, wasn't fast enough, but the homeowner's father-in-law was like the, the family gardener. He loved his garden, loved his flowers. He went out the next day to work in the garden and found a shiny gold locket. This locket had some initials on it. B-G-S. Bertram Gager. Spencer. Snoot. <laughs> Bertram Gager Spencer. And inside the locket was a picture of his mother and his wife. Oh, that's incriminating. That seals that deal pretty well. But the thing was, not yet. This neighborhood had been hit repeatedly by the burglar. So the victims got together, they chatted, and the locket came out. They checked in directories, telephone lists, poll lists, and the only person in the area who had the initials BGS was Bertram Gager Spencer. He lived, uh, the, his listed address then was 53 Greenwich Street, which, as we talked about, roads change. There's no, it doesn't go to 53. <laughs> There's no 53 that I can find, so. And uh, he was listed as a brakeman for the Boston and Maine Railroad. Hmm. And they were just like, well, he has a good job. He lives in a decent neighborhood. Must not be him. The father-in-law would not let it go any further. He refused to take it, take the locket to the police. He was like, I don't think they'll be able to do anything with this. And, you know, even if they do, they'll probably just arrest the wrong dude. You know how they are. So six months pass, and then this murder happens in the commission of a burglary, and the Pinkertons come to town, and finally the family hands the locket over. Now that somebody has died because of their inaction. Exactly. Had they maybe done something six months ago? Um, but also, they're not the only ones with the inaction, and they're kind of not wrong about the police. The police had talked to Bertram Spencer several times. Interesting about the, the burglaries and he would either just refuse to answer any questions or, you know, <laughs> he would say, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. I plead the fifth. Yeah. It was really, he, he would just clam right up stonewall. Though just the locket could be circumstantial. You know, if you said, Oh, I was just cutting through the yard. Yes. Yeah, and the lock on it or, you know, the clasp on it has always been terrible, but, uh, sounds like they had other reasons to check into this fella. Yeah. And they did. And so finally they, they track him down. He's no longer on Greenwich. He's now on at 45 Porter Avenue, which also no longer exists, but it, it from description seems like it's right by the Connecticut River. 
Mm. Um, over on the West Springfield side. And he's boarding there with his mother and his wife and their new baby. Ouch. Mm-hmm. And they find out that he, Bertram Spencer is now working as a clerk for H.L. Handy and Company. They stake him out for a few days. And then, when they were certain that he was their dude, they moved in for the arrest. It was April 5th. 1910. A certain podcaster would be born a little over seven decades later. (laughs) On that very day. (laughs) Happy birthday to me. Hey there, beloved listeners. If you're enjoying this episode, then you absolutely should check out our Patreon. That's patreon.com slash oldtimeycrimey, which is the absolute best way you can support the show and get something in return. For just $5 a month, you get five bonus episodes a month. On the Patreon, we frequently talk about old-timey crimes you won't hear about anywhere else. Crimes that have been forgotten by time and erased by history that you won't read about on Wikipedia, Murderpedia, or really anypedia. We also delve into the old newspapers, for the wacky wild crimes like the thieving lion tamer and the spaceman intruder. Or talk about strange, delightful customs like nutting day while learning about the time people rioted over cheese. (laughs) We can't even talk about it in our own promo without giggling. I love nutting day. (laughs) Nutting day is the best day. So come check out the Patreon for more of the weirdest, wildest and most shocking old-timey crime. That's patreon.com slash oldtimeycrimey. Where's the link? (laughs) In the show notes. (laughs) I knew I was not going to get through Nutting Day without giggling. They searched the house once they arrested him and they found a really unusual amount of jewelry. 105 pieces ranging in value from 25 cents to $25. He's in jail, and his first visitors, after being remanded into custody without bail, were his mother, his sister, and a friend of the family, uh, Dr. Elizabeth Young Myers. This seemed to be the first time he really showed any emotion. He broke down, he was trembling, and he threw his head on his mother's breast and sobbed, Oh, mother, is there a God in heaven? I had a lot of fun with that. (laughs) I didn't plan on hamming it up, but sometimes you just gotta. I mean, he seems like a very dramatic person. I I wouldn't expect him to calmly... Oh, we're gonna find some shit out. Oh, boy. Drama's one word for it. One of the things that officers found at his house was a rug stolen from the sheriff's house. Oh, brazen. (laughs) Yeah, right? So they have, like, sort of a call for victims to come and identify him as well as look at the goods and see if their stuff is there. Some stuff they hadn't even noticed was gone. Like the carpet? I guess so, yeah. Um, like, you know, and it, it, one was called like an Indian bead belt or something like that. And sure. she was like, my, my belt! <laughs> <laughs> Bertram Spencer gets the third degree from the police. That first day he was adamant on his innocence. Just denied, denied, denied. But that night, something changed. He was visited by three ghosts? You know, you're kind of, you, you're kind of, you're close. You're close. All right. He said he was in his cell 
and a drunken prisoner in the next cell over was going on and on and on. What was the drunken prisoner saying? Oh, that Spencer had killed Martha Blackstone, and that the Dow ladies had identified him as the murderer. Okay, is there anyone out here who doesn't think that this is the police fucking with him? Oh, that'd be awesome. I mean, technically, cops can do that sort of thing. I guess so, yeah. And this is one of the more creative versions of, you know, cops can lie that I've ever seen. It's definitely, uh, I think the thing is, is that you really risk if somebody is not of a balanced mental state, um, you know, possibly causing a false confession or causing some sort of psychological damage. Because cops are always very concerned about preventing false confessions and damaging completely innocent people's lives. You know the saying, all cops are beneficial. So that was the best B word I could come up with. <laughs> I know there's a better one, but I'm not going to find it today. I'll probably find it when I'm listening to this in a couple days. I'll be like, ah, that's the word. So <laughs> We do love the police when they are honorable and... Without reproach. Yeah, yeah. It's just that it, there's, there's too few that are that way. <laughs> yeah, I just, I just feel like there needs to be... Uh, I feel like they're stretched thin in the, the variety of, of community tasks that they're expected to do. And maybe if we had other people who are more suited to those tasks, you know, like psychologists, social workers, things like that, then people might get more the help they need and less shot. Um, so... <laughs> those, those changes are coming. But... 1,800 years ago, if you saw A, B, C, and D, well, damn, if you weren't going to get a confession. Yeah, yeah. They, uh, not even 18, 1,800 years ago? Uh, well, <laughs> How did we get to the year 200, Barb? <laughs> In the 1900s, yes, the third degree was very, um, very much used. It didn't really become a point of controversy or really become outlawed. I mean, we're talking this like violent method of eliciting a confession. Like, Can you explain people. a little what the third degree really meant? It really meant essentially torturing someone. Extremely long interrogations, no breaks, no no drinks, no food. You know, you're, you're hungry, you're tired, they wouldn't let you sleep, so sleep deprivation gets in there. You know, and that's one of the components that helps with brainwashing. Mm-hmm. And, 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 like, violence, beating people up to get a confession is basically, like, the third degree. And it's really interesting, some of the psychological things that um, police interrogations can do. So they'll put you in a room and make sure that you can see the temperature gauge behind the policeman. And it might be really, really warm in there or really, really cold in there. And you want to be able to control the temperature, but there's that physical barrier of the policeman blocking you from that. And, like, these are in the procedures. Wow. Like, letting them see the door and the light switch and the thermostat and not being able to access them. Um, it is mind-blowing what they can do to treat you that you are at their whims. Um, it's really fascinating. And um, if anybody wants to learn more about it, Stuff You Should Know has an excellent podcast on how police interrogation works. Ooh, I'm going to have to listen to that. I'll put that on my list. It actually came out right very soon before Making a Murderer came out on Netflix. Oh, okay. Well, and so it's kind of old, isn't it? <laughs> I had to stop watching that show because I kept seeing all the things uh, that they do in these procedures just perfectly executed. 
against this poor 15 year old. Mm -hmm. And it's like this little, this kid had no chance. Yeah. You know, he's going against these experts in breaking people down. He's just a kid. Yeah. So yeah, it was, it was actually very triggering and it was like, I can't do this. Mm -hmm. So um, yeah, excellent, excellent podcast for anybody looking for a recommendation. I'm going to give that a listen. All right. So yeah, he's given the third degree uh, and um, they start the interrogation over the next morning after his little haunting. Um, This is the first time that the idea of hearing voices is brought up in this case. But it, now they're just trying to get, you know, a confession. And he it did the trick. He confesses right off. He tells the police that he's been stealing since he was a little boy. And since then, had stolen something from every place he'd ever been in all over the country. Then they drill down to the details of the murder, and he tells them all of that. And how afterwards, he slept soundly that night. It's like, oh, oh my gosh. shit, no. Um, when they asked him if he knew that he had once boarded in the same house as the Dow family, he said, no, I had no idea. Didn't even recognize him. Uh, then he confessed to 15 burglaries over the past two years in this area, plus three in Greenfield and one in Brattleboro, Vermont. What's that total? Uh, so that is 19. Across 24 years? Or 24 months? 24 months, yeah. My time. My, my <laughs> capacity for time is apparently just thoroughly broken right now. Um, so maybe about one a month that he's willing to cop to you anyway. Yeah, about that. But the rate is much... Uh, summertime mm. is a big period, which makes sense. Um, people are more likely to be outside. And so, you know, there's those distractions, like, you know, all the small accidents or fires that are apparently happening all the time, 24-7. Yeah. In people's front yards. And so there is that. Uh, he, he generally wouldn't really do much in the winter. Like around September or, you know, his, his season would end. And then he'd pick back up again in, in usually late spring or early summer. But it seemed like it was a little earlier this year. But you wouldn't really, except for like one occasion, you wouldn't see much of anything. And if you're mucking in about in moccasins, you don't want to be walking in the snow. That's true, too. Yeah, that's true as well. So, yeah. So he's confessing to all this and the murder as well. Without a whimper in his soft, euphonious voice. This confession starts with the Luddington robbery. So that family, he broke into their house and hid under the bed till the woman undressed and then demanded the two diamond rings that she had taken off and hidden. Uh, These are just a couple of examples. We're not going to go over everything, but I I picked the the best ones, really. (laughs) Uh, For a little bit, he lived on 7th Street in Springfield. And at that point, he robbed the house of Dr. R.P.M. Ames, uh, who uh, was right across the street. So he's literally robbing his neighbors, stole silver and jewelry, Another time, a woman and her daughter caught him under the mother's bed when she was going to bed. That's going to traumatize everyone. Basically, leaned down, saw like heard a noise, saw him under the bed, grabbed her daughter, and basically, like he just turned his head towards the wall because the bed was up against the wall, so that they couldn't see his face. And they were just talking about him. The women held a considerable conversation about the intruder, but he did not budge. So they're just standing there like, what what should we do? He won't go anywhere. (laughs) He's just under my bed. 
There's a man under the bed. <laughs> no, I'm not. <laughs> You're seeing things. They then left the room looking for help. And when they came back, he had grabbed a bag with $40 in it and slipped out the window. This is the rare time that he gets a decent haul. That's about $1,300 today. Some other exploits. Uh, his big burglar boy summer was apparently 1908. I mean, it was like July especially. He, he had like three or four, and some of them were just a day or two apart. So he would go out for a walk, see a house. Uh, one, one time he saw a house all lit up and the windows were open. There was a card party going on inside. So he just hitched himself up to the window, poked his head in, pulled his gun on the partygoers and demanded, quote, forced contributions. Like this even goes beyond kleptomania. Because like, it's not just stealing things, but even just messing with people. Yeah, yeah. There's there's more than a compulsion to steal going on here. There's also a compulsion to mess with people. Yeah. Yeah. Then there's the Christmas Eve burglary. One of his rare, rare winter burglaries. Christmas Eve, 1908. Mrs. Helen this is straight from a, a report on the, the entirety of this case, actually. If you're interested in this case and want to read more, I would recommend following the link to the uh, Springfield Police website because they had a 158-page document digging into this case. It is a lot. I didn't even wasn't even able to finish it because there's just so much that, I, you know, my show notes tend to be between 10 and 15 pages. And if it's getting towards 15, it might be a two-parter. This is 10. But... So, yeah, I, there's no way I can include all that. It's so much. Very comprehensive. Okay, but telling you about the Christmas Eve burglary. On Christmas Eve, 1908, Mrs. Helen J. Fisk was arranging Christmas gifts for her children on her bed in her home at 86 Calhoun Street when she was confronted by a masked burglar who pointed a revolver at her. He started to pick up some of the more valuable presents, but Mrs. Fisk said, For God's sakes, don't take those. They are my children's. All right, I won't, said the polite burglar. She gave him two dollars, and he also took some orange spoons and a napkin ring. I think orange spoons is not the color of the spoons. I think that's specifically spoons for oranges. Yeah, like a grapefruit spoon yeah. with, like, the little edgies. Yeah, the serration. <laughs> serration, edgies, you know. <laughs> I believe yours is the technical term that, you know, like, chefs use. Yeah. Use the edgies to cut it. <laughs> March 1909. He was out for a little wander and saw a big crowd in front of a house at 22 Brookline Street. He used that as his chance to hide in the house. Uh, accounts differ on that, actually. Quote, Spencer strenuously denied to the police that he was the man who on this occasion lassoed a small girl and dragged her into a yard. It was after that happened, he said, that he approached the house. So he's like, no, somebody else lassoed that girl and dragged her into the yard. And they're like, no, no, because there's witnesses. And they said that just before the robbery, Spencer had been practicing with a rope and saying, this is the way they lasso cattle in the West. And soon after that, a masked burglar lassoed the girl in the backyard. So sometimes he would create the diversion all on his own. Sometimes he was the diversion, not just taking advantage of small fires and accidents. This will... This will make sure that they're looking the other way. <laughs> I'm going <laughs> to swing my lasso and catch me a girl. Jeez. Uh, he confessed to another time when he did uh, use the 
the gun to intimidate a woman after he broke into her apartment. He shot out the lights. She threatened to attack him, and he escaped. Could have escalated, didn't. Then there was a time on Pearl Street, it was the home of L.J. Power, Spencer came into the house, went up the stairs, and found two maids. He asked them if anyone was home. His demeanor must have been more aggressive than like, hey, is anybody home? Because they cried. <laughs> and they assured him that everyone was out of the house. So he goes back downstairs, and the owner of the house had just come in. When he gets down there, Spencer confronted the man and robbed him. Then he tried to leave, but was for some reason unable to. I, I, he couldn't manage the door or something. It's really weird and slapsticky. So he fled to the second story. Of course, that was where Mr. Power, the owner of the house, had gone to retreat. Spencer forced Mr. Power to come downstairs and let him out. That has to be at least a little embarrassing. Certainly embarrassing. Certainly embarrassing. I had this weird thing in, especially in Germany, but in some of Europe, but especially in Germany, where I, I, I could not figure out how the doors worked. I don't know what it was, but I did not get along with the doors. And I felt like a, a small child because I was like, Jackson, can you open the door? <laughs> I'm not that bright sometimes. We've all been there where it's just like, you got to jiggle it while you're lifting and do a quarter turn. And then, yeah, there's like an art to it. You got to like get the wrist in there. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And uh, another interesting exploit was the apartment on, of uh, Miss Ava Tessier on Salem Street. He did his usual dramatic entrance with the gun, but apparently she gave him a fight and struggled so hard that he eventually just bolted. That was his biggest haul, though. He got $60 out of that one. That's pretty big money. It's pretty decent money, yeah. That's about uh, close to 2000 Other burglaries, little less profitable. He robs some residents named uh, Mr. and Mrs. H.L. Rippling. They had $2.75 in their possession. And then he came along, and it was in his possession. But then he looked at the coins in his hands. One of them was a $2.50 gold piece. When he looked closer, he realized it was a souvenir. I think they called it a pocket piece. <laughs> and he politely handed that back to Mrs. Rippling. And then they, they all chatted for about half an hour. He discussed his, uh, his life and his profession, and then climbed back out the window. That has to be surreal. It's got to be absolutely surreal, yeah. That souvenir has taken on an entirely new memory. Yeah. <laughs> and this is the gold piece that some weirdo who broke into my house almost stole, but then gave back to me. And then we talked about his life, because free therapy, I guess. Lovely man. <laughs> yeah. He, this was not in some accounts, but in other accounts I was able to find it, in at least one account, where he set fire to a barn on West Main Street. Uh, July 1909. The family was attending to the fire, and the owner's son went into the house to use the phone. While he was on the phone, Spencer came into the house. The young man said, oh, are you a fireman? Spencer said, no, I'm a burglar. <laughs> yeah. Just perfectly casual. Perfectly casual, yeah. Every right to be here, no worries. And uh, just to really hammer home that, you know, he, he'll just grab anything. One of the items he stole was a chain and a bangle with the Lord's Prayer engra engraved on it. That, that feels like stealing rosary beads or something. Like, you just don't do that. 
I'm not even a religious person and I still feel like that would be totally jinxy, you know? <laughs> like I'm cursed. Uh, there were also some break-ins to a post office, a railroad station, and a store in Williamsville, Vermont. Oh, so he really dabbled. He's a busy, busy boy. Now, we talked about how there's more to it than just greed for jewels, and there's also the lust for adrenaline, but there's one more factor that he brings into it. Now I'm going to give you a more fleshed-out biography of Bertram G. Spencer, and this is going to be interesting. He attributes his actions to a hole in the back of his head, Hmm. which he said his father caused when he was small. Now, he couldn't remember whether the hole was from his father hitting him on the head or if he fell during the course of the punishment. The punishment his father was giving him was for his first theft that we're aware of when he stole a jackknife from the village store. That's really interesting. Yeah, yeah. So there's a head injury there. Yeah, we, we true crime enthusiasts uh, really like to draw the, the pretty established line between traumatic brain injuries with impulse mm. and the removal mm. of self-control. Yes, yes, and uh, times two because there's a second head injury. Oh. Yes, this, uh, there was a lot of abuse in this childhood. It's not pretty. Bertram's father one day was punishing him for looking at pictures and books. Now you're thinking... Was he looking at, you know, naked ladies or something? No, he looked at the books at a church social and he was three. Really, really unreasonably strict, even for the time. That's too young. Yeah. So his father is punishing him and Spencer slipped out of his father's hands and fell. On his way down, he hit the back of his head on a stove and got a nice gash at the base of his skull. It's not pretty. And the, the, the discipline in this house was really kept with violence, uh, sometimes at gunpoint. His father slept with his revolver under his pillow. Something Spencer emulated. He, too, slept with his wife under his pillow. Nope. <laughs> the next word is wife. <laughs> well, you know, I'm not going to kink shame. Uh, he, too, slept with his revolver under his pillow. Did the father, do, do we know if the father ever used his gun as a punishment with his child? Do you think he ever brandished the gun at Bertram? He shot at Bertram. Oh, see? Yeah. <laughs> it, was, it was more than just a threat. Sometimes he was actually like Bertram was running away and he was shooting at him. So there, yeah. there's a pattern of him learning that you you use guns to control people who aren't doing what you want. Yes, absolutely. If there is one thing that he learned from his childhood is that violence, you know, can can get you what you want. Although you really wouldn't think he would have learned that because he really didn't learn from these things. He just always kept on doing the same thing. Because that's but that's the, not a thing. That's yeah, not how that works. Yeah, it's because it's a it's a bad method of parenting. So yeah. Uh, hmm. Oh, boy. Uh, so, yeah, the, the gun thing. And then Spencer's mother testified that the father had barely slept for 20 years. He had some paranoia going on, and that, that seemed to keep him awake. Uh, and a couple other, another fun punishment here. Um, when Spencer was seven, his father tied his hands behind his back, marched him to the woodshed, And you think you know what's coming here, but I assure you, you did not. 
he shoved Spencer's head on the chopping block and threatened to cut his head off if he ever did it again. What had he done? He had set some leaves on fire. Okay. I mean, so in a we're, way, I... we're already seeing, you know, that, that there is already low impulse and kind of a penchant for pyromaniacy. There's... Pyromania? Yeah, yeah. Why am I even trying big <laughs> words today? <laughs> They're your enemy. Edgies. Um, edgies. Yeah, there's, there's definitely a sense of no impulse control mixed with a penchant for violence. It's all just brewing. Mixed with paranoia, mixed with rage, uncontrollable rage his dad has. It's just, it's really disturbing to read about the, the, the shit he was doing to his son. This was a horrifying childhood. This kid was not socialized well as a puppy. No, no. And as you can tell or imagine, maybe there's a possibility that this family is really permeated with mental health issues. And it goes through both branches. Several of them were committed to state hospitals, although that doesn't actually mean mental illness during that time period, but still. Uh, here are some descriptions or you know, also symptoms of a variety of family members as they were uh, written. Delusions. Silly at times and cunning at times. Erratic in many ways and scheming. Neurotic and had outbreaks of violent temper. Had insane spells. And... Inclined to fits of melancholy. I think scheming is the best part. Scheming is good. Erratic I, in many ways and scheming. I like scheming. Like, just looking over at, at, at your roommate, like, pouring over maps. Like, they're scheming again. Better get the coat. <laughs> maps maps are your idea of scheming? Yeah. Well, at least it's a little cooler, actually, <laughs> than, than me, me being pouring over my maps because I'm simply a dork. See, you're scheming. <laughs> I'm scheming, But yeah. we will have to lock you up for this. <laughs> yeah, I figured eventually. It would be my downfall. Now, Mrs. Spencer, she, uh, not a great, not a great life here either, uh, of her, it was said, Mrs. Spencer is a highly strung, over-conscientious woman whose life seems to have been one continual sacrifice to the peculiarities of her husband and children, with the idea of family insanity never far from her mind. In her family, there have been three generations afflicted with mental disease. Now, Bertram and his mom got on swimmingly. As you can probably tell, he didn't get along with his dad. He, you know, he took after him. Pretty well. He was known in school and pretty much ever, everywhere else for his temper. He had a little habit of holding up young women on the highway. As a kid. He's a highway boy. He's not even a highway man. He's a highway boy. He just saw something he wanted to do and nothing refrained him from doing it. He's, he's grabbing that brass ring, man. And it probably will actually be brass. <laughs> <laughs> now, his parents, that little naval trip to see the world, that was sending him to the military, to the Navy, because they couldn't handle him. And they Trying thought, to straighten him out. Exactly, yeah. Um, he had been stealing from his schoolmates and his parents from age nine. He would sneak into people's houses. He didn't even bother with a mask or, and a gun. He was either that stupid or that cocky or both. Just that impulsive. 
just wanted to see what was going on in there and nothing told him to consider that action and off he went. Yeah, yeah. And really, uh, I don't think that life at sea was going to work for him. And it didn't. Um, he, he lasted two weeks. <laughs> There's only so many people you can steal from before someone's going to catch on yeah. and kick you out. Well, they didn't list that as the reason he was, he, I mean, although I'm sure there was. I'm, I'm sure, sure it did, was going yeah. on. Uh, he was discharged for disability, quote, unfit for service on account of enuresis. He was wetting the bed. Oh. Yeah. Although it seemed to be like almost, I don't know. I don't know how I would describe this from like a, a psycholo psychological perspective. It's, it's spreading. It's contagious. The big word disease. I'm sorry. I'm sorry I gave you the big word disease. I have the big word disease. It does seem like he's got two out of three of the Mac McDonald trilogy. Triangle? Triangle. Bedwetting. Pyromania. Is he ever cruel to animals? Oh, I don't doubt it. I, I don't have it listed anywhere, but back then cruelty to animals was kind of just par for the course. Oh, wait a second. Was there some cruelty? To Give me a second. Let me think. Um... Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. He did kill at least one dog and at least one cat. See? The McDonald triad. That's it. Try it. Try it. That's right. Yeah. The three oh. behaviors that may indicate somebody has a propensity towards serial killing. Yeah, I think people looked at that too much as a hard and fast rule yeah. for too long. And that's why we're, we're a lot careful in our wording now, because it's not like... Oh, this definitely means you're going to be a serial killer. Nothing is nothing is that black and white in, in life. Yeah. And labeling somebody can actually push them towards behavior. Yeah, um, yeah. However, seeing, you know, the bedwetting, the pyromania, animal cruelty, and traumatic brain injury, I would say that he's kind of filling out the formula, man. He kind of is. Yeah, he kind of is. Yeah, that this environment didn't really you know, make it for him. His mother, she was, she was always supportive. She tried. She tried. Uh, she said, my boy was like a great many other boys. What he did in his youth, I always forgave him for because of his youth. I love my son as much as when he left me. I forgive him because I know he did not realize what he had done until now. She's very much boys will be boys in that. There's a lot of that. Oh, well, you know, so everybody makes mistakes. <laughs> Maybe overcompensating for the insane cruelty from the other side of the parenting. Absolutely, situation. yeah. It is truly insane cruelty. Yeah. So her, her little boy is out. Uh, he ended up back in Lebanon for a little while. And then at some point he was living in Boston. Uh, now, okay. There's a couple of... Periods of time when we're not really sure who is doing what. And there's a reason for that. I'll explain in a minute. So he was possibly living in Boston and ended up in the Plymouth County Jail after being picked up for pickpocketing outside the fairgrounds. They let him go, didn't really charge him. And then there's a possibility that he did some skeleton key robberies with a partner in Providence, Rhode Island. Skeleton keys being notoriously easy to game because you can just, a lot of them will fit any key, <laughs> any door with the skeleton key lock thing. So this was in his early 20s and um, he did get busted, but uh, this is the description from the paper. Just prior to their capture, the city had been terrorized and startled by the unusual boldness of robbers who almost every afternoon in the months of May and June 1903 
stealthily entered residences and made big hauls of money, jewelry, and silverware. There were more than 30 robberies of a similar character, all having indications pointing to the same perpetrators. They found skeleton keys, burglar tools, and silk masks, as well as three revolvers in his room. He served a year and a half in prison for that. And he himself said he was lucky it wasn't 20 years. Do we know anything about his partner in those robberies? Um, They were listed somewhere, but the thing is, is that this may have been his evil twin. (laughs) 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 Or maybe less evil twin. There is another burglar in this general region named Bertram Spencer. Interesting. (laughs) Yes. He was also known to the police as Woods. And yeah, they're both criminals. So this is uh, alternate universe Bertram Spencer. He, at the time that Bertram G. Spencer was picked up for the murder, the other Bertram Spencer was serving time already for a burglary. He was in the Massachusetts State Prison, uh, committed burglaries around the suburbs of Boston. Quote, he was considered a very able cracksman, cracksman, and a man who dared. I'm just going to refer to everything, everyone as a man who blank, a woman who blank. I enjoy this. (laughs) Just random words, too. Nothing that actually makes sense. She was a woman who splotted. (laughs) It's going to make things up. So, now, he was in jail for eight to ten years, a sentence at the time of uh, Spencer's known crimes. There is a theory kind of connecting these two in that some people thought that Bertram G. Spencer was either taking inspiration from the other Bertram Spencer or just thought, well, if you, I guess if your name's Bertram Spencer, this is what you do, (laughs) you know, birds of a feather. He's, he's a copier. He really is. He slept with his gun, just like his dad did. He copied his mother's suicide attempts. They both went for a razor and then laudanum. That's, that's copying. Yeah. Um, and, uh, the saddest plagiarism ever. If he did know about the other Bertram Spencer, I'm more likely to believe that this was just one part of his motivation because he had like four or five different motivations and he'd been doing this shit since he was a young age, probably before the other Bertram Spencer started. So yeah, I I don't know. Now earlier, I did read you that quote way back when we first started talking about him about how he was a snappy dresser, he didn't use liquor or drugs. All right, I'm going to give you now the context of uh, the stuff that came before that quote and the stuff that came after. That was that quote. It wasn't like a little sentence. It was a full paragraph, but just the kind of whiplash that you get reading this. All right, so, and I'll include the quote too in the, in the process just for, you know, refresh your memory. Ordinarily, certain characteristic weaknesses are found in the lives and dispositions of criminals. Some are slaves to drink. Others are addicted to drugs or are brutal. Most criminals are ugly and vicious in appearance. Few of these qualities, however, were manifest in the case of Bertram G. Spencer. Here is the paragraph I read you earlier. He had the respect and confidence of a wide circle of respectable friends, as he appeared manly and fit to merit their confidence. He was a kind husband, loved his wife, and provided for his family as a good husband should. Next paragraph. It was his love of excitement that led him astray. 
After committing a burglary, Spencer changed his clothes and never ran. He walked away from the scene of a robbery, and his clean appearance and gentlemanly bearing never aroused suspicion. Probably the police patrol passed him many times after his robbery, robberies, but he was not observed as he always had on his street clothes and walked leisurely away. Well, you said even at one point he pet the the dogs that were searching for him. He pet the dogs. He would just hang around. He, he liked in the crowd. Also, he, you know, impulsive behavior done by criminals. <laughs> and he's also one of those. Um, the ego played a part because. He liked seeing his exploits written about in the newspapers. And he also considered it a game where he's trying to beat the police. Which only lasts so long for most people. Not for everyone, but for most people. So it's just, uh, I, I love that that whole set of three paragraphs was like, criminals are ugly. Bertrand Bree Spencer was well-loved. He just is a cocky asshole <laughs> like that, that that's the theme of each paragraph here and also how you can take that paragraph and if you take that out of context how different everything seems yeah it, it varies a stark contrast between what people expected of criminals at the time mm -hmm. and how they saw bertram g spencer you know as long as you had a decent job and lived in a decent house even you know a boarding house whatever uh if you were well you know dressed well enough Nobody would think you were a criminal. Just because you don't need to commit crimes doesn't mean you don't want to commit crimes. Exactly. Criminals, uh, cr crime is not just for the poor. I mean, I don't want the super huge latte with all the fancy drizzles and glazes and whipped cream, but I sure want it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Sometimes, you know, if you do what you love, you never work a day in your life. Bertram G. Spencer is a role model in that he was never working when he was busting into people's houses, stealing their random crap, and scaring them to death. Also, on the other side, sometimes your work doesn't have to be the only thing in your life. That is true. Bit of a workaholic, this one. Especially in the summer times. <laughs> he also seemed to have this unquenchable longing for the finer things in life, like jewelry and elaborate furnishings. Um, he wanted, you know, to... Furnish a handsome setting for his pretty wife, for whom he seems to have a strong and genuine affection. And that, when he moved to West Springfield, it seems like his main goal became to live in a well-furnished home. He wasn't so great at keeping the jobs, so that didn't help. He's not rolling in it to buy the, the furniture and bric-a-brac that he needs. He's robbing people so he can buy bric-a-brac, literally. Like ceramic figurines and fake plants. But if it makes her happy. To put on a credenza or a side table. I don't think it's her. He wants the bric-a-brac. Maybe he thinks it's what'll make her happy. But it's definitely laid out and this is his motivation. He wants the status of being able to buy the bric-a-brac. This is the... He... Okay. He is committing burglaries and at one point killed a woman. For the 1910 equivalent of a live left love sign. <laughs> Like, really? Seriously? I mean, bric-a-brac was, literally, they advertised it as bric-a-brac in the paper. Uh, one advertisement had it 39 cents on special, which is about $13 today. Although, to be fair, the same ad had bric-a-brac for $3.75, which is $127. Uh, 
I think once you're over $100, it's no longer bric-a-brac, but that's just me. It's decor. It's decor. It's decor. He also needed the money to be able to dress up because he was quite the man about town. Many young women at the North End have received the attention of Spencer at one time or another. He was regarded among them as a veritable lady killer. Oh my God, really? Really? We're doing this? This is what we're doing. Really? Even I disapprove <laughs> of this. Sometimes the universe just needs to be literal, okay? Really? Seriously? Oh my gosh. It's so funny because I didn't even catch that when I was typing up my notes. This is from a newspaper or maybe the report, I can't remember. It's been a rough week, let me tell you. But yeah, a Bo Brummel has... <laughs> I still can't get a lady killer. Jesus Christ, I'm angry. <laughs> no! Ah. <sighs> Spencer admits that he was engaged to half a dozen women here at one time, but the engagements were broken. His women friends say that he was a fellow of exemplary personal habits. Well, put that in your Tinder bio. You will be picking up the ladies. With your exemplary habits? I am a man with exemplary personal habits and a man who dares. I'd say I have mediocre habits. Yeah, mine are okay. They're meh. I am not a woman who dares. <laughs> I'm barely a woman who leaves the house anymore. <laughs> it's okay. Surgery, surgery, meant surgery. So, he would sell the literal takings from his burglaries and try to get money for his live, laugh, love sign. He felt no guilt for his crimes. Really, the only thing that bothered him was dropping that locket. So his arrest, obviously, the next thing in people's minds is, okay, what else is he responsible for? They start looking at other unsolved crimes. Uh, there's something that, that never really comes out here. The police won't release this information, but he did tell other officials in the police hierarchy, quote, something back of his local record that will jar the country. They didn't explain anything further than that. It never came out. Whatever it was that would jar the country, something shocking. I'm imagining, considering how many times he either got flat out violent or threatened people's lives, I, I'm guessing this is not the first time he's killed someone, but that's just a guess. I feel like that would come out. So they're you saying he, he confessed to things and some were so crazy that it couldn't be released. Yeah, essentially. And then they never released it. I'm betting it's something sexual. Oh, there's that too. Maybe that. I mean, he doesn't seem, it doesn't seem like overt sexual, but there is a lot of Was sexual stuff. Was he stealing their underwear? Didn't see that anywhere, no. Um, although, would they necessarily miss it? Who knows? Um, so, but there is that some sort of weird relationship with control that he has that, that could, maybe. Uh, I do think that one's a stretch, but because we don't have any reports of him ever sexually assaulting anyone. We do have a report of him murdering someone, though. So, so yeah, it's just it, I'm wondering if they were just trying to clear out their backlog by pinning everything on him. It's really tempting when that opportunity makes itself known. So, at first, he was adjudged to be insane and committed to the state hospital. I mean... There's all the family history. There's his own behavior where he's just been incorrigible since he was a small child. There's the head injuries and the abuse that he suffered. 
there's a lot of people who could testify that he clearly heard voices because he would constantly be like, did you say something? And they'd be like, I have been silent for five minutes. <laughs> Stuff like that. Times that he confronted people, like I said, he threatened people's lives. There's, there's a lot there that it's clearly not on balance. But people were not happy about this result. So unhappy that they ousted the district attorney in the next election, which was that year. And uh, so they get a new guy in who had campaigned on the promise that uh, Spencer would have a trial. And so Spencer did. He was declared sane again because words and declarations mean nothing. We can just reverse them anytime we feel like it. Mm -hmm. And then he was brought back to be tried. November 11th, 1911, the trial begins. And he is either putting on a good show or is for real. Uh, in court, Spencer's demeanor appeared to support the contention of the defense that he was insane. He raved during the proceedings, sprang up from the dock on several occasions, and called to the jury not to send him to the electric chair. He had to be restrained by force, and several times the court was obliged to take a recess until he had been calmed. At one point towards the end of the trial, they referred to him being in a cage. Wow. Yeah. So he's, he's definitely acting out... Yes. Maybe not acting, but acting out at the very least. Oh, he, he's, he's acting out at the very least. He would curse at the prosecution's attorney, who was, by the way, the attorney general of the state. <laughs> yeah, that's the guy you want to get mad. Yeah, yeah. He accused the prison doctor uh, of trying to poison his coffee, salt, and pepper. This was while said doctor was testifying, of course. I mean, you want to get those accusations right out in the, in the open. He really becomes known as Springfield's Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. I mean, in these modern times, he would probably have tried representing himself. <laughs> oh, absolutely. Oh, he would have been pro se all the way, baby. <laughs> pro se all the way. Now, as for, you know, like I said, there's so much testimony and that gets brought up about his childhood and his actions. Pretty much everyone who's ever known him has a story or six about his behavior. His father-in-law can tell a story, can tell a story about how before uh, Spencer married, he uh, came to the house and said, uh, I'm gonna kill you and uh, drag your daughter off and marry her. That's not a cause for alarm. Not at all, no, no. That is uh, exactly zero red flags. That's what we say in polite society all the time. Totally normal behavior. So there's just, there's so much that it's actually overwhelming to me how much evidence there is. It's not like one of those cases where they're trying to pull things out of the woodwork. They're like, oh, his great, great, great aunt was in an institution for a week. This is, this is, this is in this family. <laughs> there is so much in this family. So in closing arguments, <laughs> really, Spencer's attorney puts it pretty interestingly. This is, I like, I like this. He says that Spencer's family's blood is, quote, three parts insanity to one part eccentricity. Meanwhile, the uh, prosecution's closing ended with a plea to find Spencer guilty on behalf of all womanhood. Don't use us, dude. 
not on all womanhood. I just don't like it when people speak for us, especially if they're not us. Some very specific womanhood. Yeah. Woman that had been victimized. Yeah, 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 yeah. Absolutely. Some maids, some teachers. Couple I mean, nice ladies. Yeah, yeah. So the judge gives the jury instructions. This is this seems to be kind of what everything hinges on here in the instructions, which were this this case attracted lawyers from all over. Everybody wanted to see this case in action, especially when you had the attorney general working on for the prosecution. And this is a you know pretty this case really had everybody's attention. So they all come and everybody had high high praise for the judge's instructions to the jury. Said so they were very balanced. It was, you know, one of the best instruction deliveries they'd seen. So he tells the jury that murder in the first degree requires the Commonwealth to prove that the killing was done with malice aforethought, deliberately premeditated. But here's the kicker here. If someone enters a house unlawfully and kills another person who is lawfully in the house, malice aforethought does not need to be proven. Interesting. I know. I mean, kind of the forethought is the fact you're entering somebody else's home. You know, it's not like you were walking down the street and he yelled, boo, and, and you shot him. Um, but you've, you've already committed a malicious event mm -hmm. by entering that home with a weapon. And in a lot of places, committing a murder in progress of committing a felony, you know, if you are robbing a bank and you kill somebody, um, that adds like an extra level to it. Yeah. So, yeah, it definitely, it, it's funny because you read that first one and you're like, oh, well, he definitely, he didn't have malice of forethought. And then you read about, you know, oh, well, yeah, he did go in the house carrying a gun, knowing he might confront someone because he was stealing from them and in fact intentionally confronted them. I think he could have slipped out of the door unhurt. Yeah. It wasn't like they ran into him in the hall. Yeah. Or he couldn't get out of the house or whatever. He did this because he gets off. Yeah. He likes scaring women. And he's even People kind of in general, proven but also that women. He's kind of proven that he can be quite the gentleman burglar and have a lovely conversation and yeah. return some of the items that had sentimental value. He's so... so the fact that, that some things went that way versus this one... He, first of all, he killed the woman. And then when somebody else was trying to get away... He then chose to shoot them. Yeah. yeah. So he, it, it wasn't like he didn't have several opportunities to stop himself from being in that situation. Yes, absolutely. Even if the burglary was spur of the moment, the second he went into that house, somebody getting killed was a possibility. Yeah. So, yeah. Excellent call, Judge. Yeah, yeah. That was that was pretty good. Um, pretty good instructioning. Yeah. <laughs> so... Instructing is a word, and I just went right past it. I've broken our words today. I, <laughs> yeah. I apologize. Thank you. It's okay. It's all right. It happens sometimes. The words, they just crash onto the ground. They shatter. We sweep them up with a broom. We move on with our lives. It's okay. So, yeah. I thought that was really interesting. You would think, considering how much testimony is given and the fact that his, his about his family's mental health and his mental health, you would think, and everybody expected the jury to clinch it on, you know, this is no longer did he do it. We know he did it. The question is, was he insane legally at the time that he did it? Yeah. But they really just seemed, it seemed to clinch on that whole, you know. Well, see, I mean, there is the, the understanding that 
insanity under the eyes of the law is different from medical insanity and mental illness. Yeah. You know, if he understood he was committing crimes and that they were bad, not just, oh, I always take what I want, Mm -hmm. but no, I know it's wrong to take stuff and I know it's wrong to shoot people. Um, you know, you can be completely bug fuck crazy and still be legally still sane. Still be legally sane. Mm-hmm. It's an interesting sort of, I don't know, uh, it's not quite a catch-22. It's something. Nah, I'm not going to try that hard because the words are broken, so <laughs> I know better than to try. So uh, the jury on November 10th at 10 p.m., they had a... They started in, like, the afternoon. It's still a long-ass day, uh, but this was not, like, a, an 8 a.m. start time. <laughs> so it's 10 p.m., and the judge sends the jury to deliberate. They come back after five hours and uh, give their, their verdict at 3.10 a.m. Listen, if you were trying to ask me to deliberate till 3 o'clock in the morning, I'd be like, whatever y'all want to do, I just want to go home. Yeah, I just want to sleep. Uh, so they came, and you don't you don't want that as the defendant either. No. You don't want them being like, you know what, I'm really tired. Can we just I don't guilty want and then call it a day? sleepy and hard to rationalize. Yeah, yeah. I don't want them sleep deprived. That's how I confessed in the first place. It's what a lot of people would say during this time period. So they have, they come back and it's a guilty verdict. This is uh, a capital offense and the electric chair is the current method at this period of time. Oh God, I just said it, didn't I? What? The electric chair is the current method. The current method. Excellent pun. <laughs> Thank you. Well, it's, it's snuck right past me. It's no lady killer. <laughs> God. He is on death row. He got really into Christian science. He stated that he was not afraid of the electric chair because as a Christian scientist, the electric current wouldn't hurt him. I do wonder if that was some sort of misunderstanding even maybe a willful misunderstanding because if maybe he was like, well, you know, God will protect me from, from all and then take me into his bosom or whatever. I don't know. That would have to be a, a very extreme amount of faith to believe that God is going to protect you from an electric chair. Yes. Yes, exactly. But understanding that, you know, in that faith that if you are seeking forgiveness, then you will get into heaven. That's a different story. Yeah, Absolutely. Uh, He wrote farewell letters to his mother and his wife. He said that he had written his wife every day, but she never responded or even visited him in the death house. She was there for the trial, uh, but it seemed like this relationship was already not great. She she kind of took her her chance and she was like, all right, bye. (laughs) I I imagine that finding out that your partner has been stealing and terrifying people for funsies and then using that to buy bric-a-brac that'd be kind of butthurt yeah and keep in mind they they even found 105 things in the house that he had not sold he yeah. did not dispose of in any way a lot of people and he gave some jewelry to her that oh he i'm sure of it yeah and so a lot of people were like how did you not realize this she's like i don't know i thought he just picked something up for cheap so yeah he was um, always doing that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he's always picking stuff up for cheap, even free somehow. Also, uh, speaking of his mother, 
she was very adamant. She wanted people to know that she had absolutely no stolen property in her possession because uh, people all over New England were writing to her claiming that Spencer had burgled their houses. <laughs> if somebody lost a spoon, they were like, that damn Bertram Spencer. <laughs> I'm going to write to his mother. It's just, just <laughs> I'm going to write to his mother. You can't just blame Bert for everything, guys. Yes, right? So his last supper, last dinner, was scrambled eggs, toast, blueberry pie, and coffee. Kind of nice. That's not bad. That's not bad. Not bad. Pretty it's, homey. It's, yes, it's not, uh, it's not anything fancy, but that's okay. Sometimes you want the simple stuff. They bring him to the chair just after midnight on September 18th, 1912. Unexpectedly. He has no scenes. He doesn't make any kerfuffles. There's really no drama here. Not even a sign of any fear or anxiety about what's coming. His last words were, I wish to say to the world and the press that this is not nerve, but the love of God which has sustained me. Good night. Wow. Mm-hmm. So... So a, a, a quick Googling while we were on this recording shows that the Christian science theology uh, believes that um, reality is purely spiritual and basically a construct and an illusion. And so it kind of would make sense that he didn't believe the electricity would harm him. Yeah. Yeah. Actually, that 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 tracks. Because reality <laughs> isn't real. Yeah. So... I, I guess if you are truly believing that you will not be harmed, you're not going to be worried about it. You're just be like, all right, you guys can pretend to do this and uh, I'll move on. And you guys can do your little weird thing here and I'll be <laughs> up with God and it's going to be good. Yeah, yeah, I won't even feel it because uh, reality is a construct. Yeah. Is Christian science the one where they can't do blood transfusions? Um, I, I would I would strongly expect that. This seems the prayer is better than medicine kind of people. Gotcha, gotcha, mm -hmm. gotcha. Okay. So uh, he's pretty unfazed by all this. He's in the chair at 12, 18 a.m. Oh, and thank you for that info. Thank you for uh -huh. giving that context. <laughs> so it looks like they wouldn't be like, no, you can never seek medical care, but rather... Prayer is the best care. So if you want to be, you know, weak and go for that other stuff, okay. But like, or if you feel the need to go for actual medical help, maybe you're just not praying hard enough and you need to be a better Christian scientist. Yeah. That's lovely. Go seek medical care when you need it. Please do. Yes. I don't know how that ended up being the message of this podcast, but it is. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's a good message. Spencer seemed pretty unfazed by all this. Uh, 1218 and then declared dead at 1223. He was the 16th man to die in the chair at Charlestown Prison. And after the execution, those people who knew Spencer and, and saw him in his final moments there, he said that they said that at the supreme moment, he had the fortitude of a man of perfect assurance. Which kind of fits with his whole just all waltz into a house. Like, consequences don't really seem to really be a thing for him. Consequences are something that happened to other people. Yeah, yeah, that's true. So, all right. Um, that is the story of Bertram G. Spencer wow. in Springfield. Thank you, Chris, for bringing us to Springfield. Uh, I would never have found this case. That was a banger. 
That was an Thank excellent you. place. Th yes, it was. This was a really, really, as soon as I found this case, I was like, oh, I got a good one on the line. <laughs> I'm like tugging my fishing line. <laughs> it's fighting me and I'm like, I'm going to get you. Reel it in. It sounds like it, it sounds like it was extremely well documented. It really was. Yeah, there's there's tons in the paper and then that 158 page when you find something like that and a document that goes from like analyzes everything and lists all the testimony and all the the burglaries are listed one by one by one by one with the addresses and everything. You don't see that. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean there's I if I'd had more time I'd had a better week. I would have done my thing where I, for no reason at all, it doesn't help ever, but put everything on a map. <laughs> and then like pinpoint marks, mark spots and everything. But I realized as I was looking at it, I was like, no, he really did most of, most of this was random. No time for schemes. Yeah, yeah. He wasn't, he wasn't planning it. There was no, you know, I'm not going to find like a pentagram in the design. <laughs> you know? No, it really seemed like he was a, a person who had crimes of opportunity and yes. impulse. And just couldn't hold himself in and didn't want to. Yeah, because he had no impulse control. Yeah. He was just going to follow wherever the wind blew. Yeah. All right. Would you like a recipe? I would love a recipe. Okay. All right. So it is tomato time. Yes, it is. <laughs> it is tomato time. Amber, before she left on her vacation, she brought me a whole bunch of tomatoes from her parents' garden because she was leaving and wouldn't be able to eat them. And uh, so... I. It was by happenstance that I found this whole column of tomato recipes, but I have a recipe for walnut stuffed tomatoes. Ooh, I yes. can see that. A little tangy, a little crunchy. All right, let's see. Let's see. Okay. A little cheesy. Peel the tomatoes. Oh, I wish. Oh. Cheesy could work. Cut a slice from the stem end of each and scoop out part of the pulp. Moisten equal parts of broken English walnut meats and finely chopped celery with mayonnaise. Fill the tomatoes with the mixture and serve on lettuce or surround with wa watercress. Really need some Parmesan in there, I think. It needs a salt element. Something. Something, yeah. I, I'm not thrilled. The celery would have to be very finely diced. I mean, very similar to like a Waldorf where you would have the, sure. the nuts and the celery and apple and grapes, weirdly. Um, it needs a little more... I don't, I'm, I suspect the body on that would not be ideal. Yeah, it needs something else. It's, it's just missing a little something. So, yeah. I okay. found that because I was looking at... A simple seasonal salad. Yeah, yeah. I was looking at menus. They, they would put menus in the newspaper that you could follow. And, it would, you know, what stuff that's in season. In the 30s, a lot of it was like, what's on sale? <laughs> uh, so, I, I love looking at those old menus. I don't know why. Again, I'm a dork. But... I saw creamed tomato toast, and I was like, what is happening? <laughs> I'm intrigued. It was interesting. It was like you sort of make like a roux, and um, I'm trying to remember what all was included in it. I think I did put the, I put the recipe in the Discord, because Dorian asked for it. So I can actually give it to you in a second, because it was just yesterday. But yeah, I was like, okay, now i got to look up creamed tomato toast and find out what the deal is there. <laughs> We, we talk a lot in the Discord. Has anybody ever noticed that? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's no avocado toast, but maybe... Uh... Okay, so Joe's pictures of cats. Ah, nope, that's the tomato canopy. I want, the, I want to make that one, actually. All right, so cream tomato toast. Here we go. One and one half cupfuls stewed and strained tomato, 
one half cupful of scalded cream or diluted evaporated milk, one fourth teaspoonful soda, three tablespoons flour, uh, salt, paprika, toast. Put fat in saucepan. When melted, add the flour and seasoning. Brown slightly, but take care not to burn. Add the tomato gradually. The tomato, the, oh, sorry, the soda is added to the tomato, then the cream. Dip slices of toast in the sauce. Serve as soon as made. After placing on serving dish, a small quantity of cheese may be grated over the top. So it seems like it's a rather like plain sort of sauce. Did you say dip the toast yeah. in the sauce? Dip the toast in the sauce. It doesn't seem like we're serving it like smothered in tomato. I would have expected milk. like <laughs> toast with like the tomato spread atop it, much as one would a jelly or a jam, not a dip. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know how the, the presentation it, is going here. It sounds very proto tomato soup and toast or grilled cheese. Yeah, I can see that. I can see that. It's not it's not my favorite thing. I'm going to make the tomato canapes. By the way, listeners, if you enjoy uh, the weird old recipes I found, I'm doing a whole thing over on my Twitter. <laughs> uh, K-Bax Writer, K-B-A-X Writer, W-R-I-T-E-R, is, uh, is how I'm known over there. And yeah, um, sporadically I'm going through this cookbook, 500 Snacks, and it has some really, really interesting uh, stuff in it. It's a lot of like canapes and appetizers and stuff like that. But it's from like, the 50s. And man, they did some interesting stuff. And they'll sneak that, that jello in, that gelatin in at the very last second. You get through a whole recipe and you're like, okay, no gelatin. And then the very last line is like, you know, put it in aspic. And you're like, damn it. <laughs> So yeah, I'm having fun with that, and it's going to be like a long-term project because she has other cookbooks, too, that I want to go through. Like, one of them was like 500 leftovers. Ooh. Like, things you can do with leftovers. So I, it was something like that. I'm going to dig it up. But she was actually, I, I make fun all the time of the recipes, but she was actually a very um, accomplished and influential woman, and I should not be such a dick, but I'm just going to keep keep doing me. <laughs> <laughs> we all keep... enjoy things in different ways. Yeah, absolutely. I recognize her her awesomeness, um, and I also recognize that a lot of the food she made would gross me out. Some of it works for me. I have ideas. I'm going to have a, like, this was where I came up with the idea of I'm going to have a whole uh, party where it's breakfast-themed canapes. Love this. Because there was one with, like, you, like, roll up scrambled eggs and cheese in, in bread, in toast. Delicious. Yeah, yeah. So uh, this is this is the whole plan that's going to happen, and I'm slowly like adding ones to my list. If I want to make that, I want to make that. Of course, I have to be able to be up and around. <laughs> so this party is not uh, not for a little while, but <laughs> so yeah, uh, that is uh, Bertram Spencer, and that is uh, stuffed tomatoes, nuts, and celery, mayonnaise, and uh, not even some parsley. I know, right? And they put some paprika like, in I there. I can just imagine it when, when it's no, plated with just a little, just a little... Oh, yeah, there's no frill of parsley on top. Maybe, yeah. Uh, they didn't... Not chopped. Just a little... No, just a little, you know, a couple leaves, a little, little branch. A little sprig. Yeah, sprig. There we go. We found it. We found a word. <laughs> it's a... It's a five-letter word. <laughs> yeah, we managed to find that in all the wreckage of the words around us. So, yeah, um... Yeah, okay, so let's, uh, advice from this episode. What advice do we have? Uh, is it really obvious if I say don't wear items that have your initials on them when you do crimes? 
No, I feel that's a perfectly great one. I feel that's pretty good, yeah. Do crimes without engraved jewelry. Or or use somebody else's initials to throw <gasps> them off the trail. Brilliant. I love it. I love it. Mm-hmm. So we tell you both how not to crime and how to crime on this show. That is uh, what makes us special. All right, listeners. Um, wish me luck. Some of you are listening to this literally as I'm under the knife. <laughs> so surreal. Very surreal to think about. But yes, this, uh, this episode comes out on surgery day. And uh, I will be back as soon as I can. It shouldn't be too long of a break. I'm going to do the best I can. And oh my gosh, it's been like two and a half years and I've never not published an episode. Next week's going to be weird. All right. That's all I have. Bye. Bye. My sources are uh, the Springfield, Massachusetts website, the Springfield, Massachusetts police website, Atlas Obscura, and from newspapers.com, thank you, Chris Garcia, the Boston Globe, Transcript Telegram, our Herald News, and the Berkshire Eagle. And I should specify that the Chris is not that Chris. <laughs> Springfield Chris is not California Chris. That's our Chris Garcia. We have an abundance of Chris's. Yes. So we're not Christy. <laughs> yes, we do. Yes, we do. That's all I have. Bye. So you can say bye. Go ahead. Bye. <laughs> there you go. She's waving at the no, microphone. No, I don't like that. This isn't retake, a Zoom retake. call. Retake. All right, all right. No, you go. <laughs> <laughs> I already said bye, but I'll say it again. Bye. Bye. There we go. <laughs> no, you go.